What's spring like in Park City, Utah? Imagine waking up on a bluebird day to ski the greatest snow on earth at two world-class resorts, Park City Mountain and Deer Valley. Exploring miles of wide open spaces by snowshoe or cross-country skis. Wandering our historic Main Street with its Opry ski scene and award-winning restaurants. When you love it like we love it, Park City, Utah will always be winter's favorite town. Join the experience at visitparkcity.com. Welcome to this special Halloween bonus episode of Foul Play. We will be talking all things Halloween, from the origins and the folklore, to how Halloween is celebrated around the world, and of course a few true crime Halloween tales. It's time to grab that coffee, a goblet of blood or something a little stronger if you prefer, and strap yourself in for a hair-raising episode. The story of Halloween is thought to have started some 2,000 years ago in regions including the United Kingdom, Ireland, and Northern France. Contrary to popular belief, its origins were nothing to do with witches and devils, but it was a seasonal Celtic festival, like a harvest festival, called Sowen, taking place from sundown on October 31st through November 1st. It was an annual harvest festival to celebrate the end of autumn and to welcome in the winter and was one of four such celebrations held throughout the year. These were known as the fire festivals. Those celebrating Samhain believed that the barriers between the physical and spirit worlds broke down during this festival, allowing more interaction between humans and those who have left us. Not much is known about the festival. Some people believe that as well as building a large fire, there would be a huge feast. Others say there were druid priests lighting communal fires. And many believe that there were animal sacrifices. By 43 AD, the Romans had conquered the majority of the Celtic territories. And the Samhain festival was combined with two festivals of Roman origin. The first was in honor of Pomona, the Roman goddess of fruit and trees. The symbol of Pomona was the apple, so this may explain the tradition of apple bobbing at Halloween. The second was a day in late October when the Romans commemorated the passing of the dead. This was known 
as Forelia. Let's fast forward to the 7th century. By now many Western European nations had converted to Christianity. And on May 13, 609 AD, Pope Boniface IV established the Catholic feast of All Martyrs Day. This was later moved from May 13th to November 1st by Pope Gregory III. By the 9th century, the influence had spread to the Celtic lands and rituals and festivals started to integrate. In 1000 AD, the church made November 2nd All Souls Day, a day to honor the dead. This was celebrated in a very similar way to the Celtic Zoan festival with large bonfires, parades, and dressing up in costumes, such as saints, devils, and angels. All Souls Day, also known as All Saints Day, was also called All Hallows, or All Hallows Mass, which comes from the Middle English word All Hallow Mass. And the night before it, the traditional night of the Sowen, became All Hallows' Eve. And then, eventually, Halloween. Halloween. And I bet you are all wondering how Halloween jumped from Northern Europe to America, aren't you? In the second half of the 19th century, America was flooded with new immigrants, including millions who were fleeing the Irish potato famine. These immigrants helped to make Halloween popular in America. I know what you're all thinking. Enough of the history lesson. You're right, let's move on to the cool stuff. Halloween has long been known as a frightening time when ghostly spirits, even witches, vampires, and the devil himself are said to run free. So where did these legends come from? I'm going to start with witches, as this is what I most associate with Halloween. <laughs> the modern-day image of a witch is most often a haggard lady with a crooked nose, a large wart on her protruding chin and wild hair. She is dressed in black with a pointed hat, a cackling laugh, a cauldron and a broomstick. Well, this is, of course, fiction. Witches are real. Today, many of us embrace homeopathic remedies and therapies, but many years ago, the wise women who were natural healers were misunderstood, and many thought that they were doing the devil's work. Let's just take a moment to look at the Salem witch trials, which happened in Massachusetts in 1692. They began when Elizabeth Paris, aged nine, and Abigail Williams, aged 11, both suddenly fell ill. Their bodies contorted in pain and they screamed uncontrollably. Nobody knew what was wrong with them. As more and more young women in the town fell ill, Three women were accused of witchcraft, Sarah Good, Sarah Osborne, and Tituba, who was an enslaved woman owned by Elizabeth Parrish's father. Tituba confessed to being a witch and began accusing others of using black magic. We now believe that the symptoms these women showed was nothing to do with witchcraft, but caused by a fungus that they had ingested that ultimately poisoned them. But you can see how easily it happened. During the Salem witch trials, 18 women and six men were put to death. Whilst you can see why people were scared of witches, in fact, most modern day witches want to avoid evil and the appearance of evil at all costs. 
Most practice Wicca and their motto is harm none, or they strive for a peaceful, tolerant and balanced life. What Halloween story in the current day is complete without a creepy clown? And why clowns? Why not a ragdoll or a toy soldier? Well, while clowns became scary more reluctantly due to serial killer John Wayne Gacy and Stephen King's novel, It, they actually go back much further in history. As an example, let's go back to the Harlequin, a figure who appeared in a play that toured Europe in the 16th century. He was known for his colorful masks and costumes covered in diamond-shaped patterns. He was a trickster who could be funny, but also a little scary and sinister. (laughs) This split personality and ability to change without changing appearance scared many people and made them very weary. Another example is Punch, a clown-like puppet who appeared in pop-up seaside shows in England in the 18th century. This show later included his wife and was known as a Punch and Judy show. But was it a funny show for children? Well, yes, his character was funny and made many jokes, but he also beat his wife and murdered his children all in the name of entertainment. So you can see, this clown type of character has been around for a very long time. In fact, Benjamin Radford, author of Bad Clowns, goes as far as to say it goes back to at least Satan in the Bible. Vampires are another huge part of Halloween. Who doesn't love to dress up as Count Dracula in a black cape and fangs? So are vampires real? I'm afraid not. Vampires are mythological beings, but you can trace them back a lot further than Bram Stoker's famous novel. In a small town in Transylvania, Romania, Vlad Dracula was born. He grew up to rule Wallachia in Romania on and off between 1456 and 1462 living in Bron Castle. I've actually visited this castle and spent the night there. It's an amazing place and there are definitely some terrifying tales. Vlad Dracula, also known as Vlad the Impaler, was a brutally cruel ruler who fought off the Ottoman Empire. He earned his nickname as he used to impale his enemies on a wooden stake. Legend has it that Vlad enjoyed dining amongst his victims and liked nothing more than to dip his bread in their blood. It is believed that Vlad was the inspiration for Bram Stoker's character, Count Dracula. We know how we get Halloween as it is today, but does everyone celebrate Halloween? And is it celebrated the same way all over the world? Let's start with the United States. Did you know that while Halloween is a big event in the United States, there are some states that actually have laws about what you can and can't do. (laughs) Those party poopers. For example, in Walnut, California, no one of any age is allowed to, quote, wear a mask or disguise on a public street, end quote, without a permit from the sheriff 
on any day of the year. In Alabama, it is illegal to dress up as a, quote, minister of any religion or nun, priest, rabbi, or other members of the clergy, end quote, on Halloween or any other day. If caught, you will be punished with a fine of up to $500 and a stay in the county jail for up to a year. In parts of Delaware, trick-or-treating is illegal. Following falls on a Sunday. On those years, children under 14 can trick-or-treat on the Saturday between 6 p.m. and 8 p.m. instead. And in Hollywood, California, those killjoys have banned silly string, saying it's against the law to, quote, possess, use, sell, or distribute silly string, end quote. In public from 12.01 a.m. on October 31st until midday on November 1st. Tempted to ignore this? There's a $1,000 fine if you violate this law. Don't worry, it's not just America that has crazy rules. In 2014, a small town in France banned clown costumes on Halloween and for the whole month of November for anyone 13 and older. Those wishing to dress up as clowns during the ban had to get permission from the authorities. Also in 2014, Jordan banned all public celebrations of Halloween. People were advised to cover up costumes if they were traveling to private events to avoid getting arrested. Here's how some of the rest of the world celebrates Halloween. In Austria, a light is left on all night, as well as some bread and water for the dead. In Germany, children carve root monsters called Rubengeister from beets and turnips to scare away bad spirits, and their parents put away knives before bed to keep the departed from harming themselves. In Spain and Italy, around Halloween, bakers prepare unusual sweets. In Spain, you can buy Huevos de Santo, which are a cylindrical marzipan cookie filled with candied egg yolk said to resemble the bones of the saints. While in Italy, they make cookies scented with cloves and delicate fava beans, shaped cakes called fava de morti. Portugal and northern Spain celebrate with seasonal produce and chestnut parties. Ireland and the UK largely celebrate in the same way as Americans, though there are a few traditions that some families keep up. In Ireland, coins are hidden in potatoes, served with onions and curly kale in a dish called kolkanon. The potatoes are followed by a fruitcake called barnbrack, with symbolic souvenirs baked into it. So biting into a rag could mean financial issues in the future, but a ring may mean you will get married soon. In the UK, Guy Fox Night on November 5th is more popular than Halloween. This was originally a celebration of King James I surviving Guy Fox's attempt to blow him up in 1605. On this night, there are large gatherings around huge bonfires. An effigy is usually on top of the mound. There are fireworks, lots of food, 
and hot toddies to drink. However, always up for a party and not ones to miss out, the folk of the UK always squeeze in a bit of trick or treating the weekend before. The Czech Republic, Poland, and Slovakia, All Saints is a week-long celebration, welcoming deceased souls back to the living. Starting on November 11th, graves of loved ones are decorated with flowers and lamps, and many, many people go during this time. In Australia, celebrations are very similar to America, though not usually on such a large scale. In China and Hong Kong, it's called Zong Huang Jai, or Hulanji, the Night of the Hungry Ghosts. The celebrations see offerings of water and food left for the dead, and lanterns are lit to guide their spirits across the land of the living. Pilgrims visiting Buddhist temples make paper boats that symbolize the spirits, both to recognize and remember the dead and to free any restless souls who've not gone gently into that good night. Western traditions have caught on in some countries more than others. Japan, Hong Kong, and Singapore go all out with carved pumpkins, while in Thailand and Vietnam, any vegetable that'll keep its shape will do. Trick-or-treating is for the kids, but costumes tend to be for the adults and you don't see much in the way of special decorations or lights. Join our Facebook page and let us know how Halloween is celebrated wherever you are in the world. I know when I moved from England to California, I thought I'd seen Halloween, been there, done that, but oh no, I was in for a treat. Firstly, it was the Halloween pop-up stores full of decorations, huge animatronics, and wall upon wall of cool costumes. I dragged my husband to numerous shops every year just to stare in awe at everything while wanting to buy all of it. Then there are the pumpkin patches. These are becoming more popular in the UK now, but here they are everywhere and they are huge. I have never seen anything like it. And the haunted houses, oh my God. How cool are these? People spend months decking out their homes and inviting random strangers in to have a look. They are spectacular. But then the 31st of October came round. We were invited to a friend's house for a little Halloween party. He warned us, he might need to park down the road, it gets quite busy. Well, nothing could have prepared me for the sight of around a thousand people, all in amazing costumes trick-or-treating. The houses were covered in extravagant decorations. There was music, lights, smoke machines, laughter, dancing. It was truly amazing and something I will never forget. Now we can't do a Halloween episode without at least telling you some dreadful and creepy crimes that have happened on October 31st, can we? On October the 31st, 1974, Timothy O'Brien, aged eight, got dressed in his Planet of the Apes Halloween costume, ready to go out trick-or-treating with his sister, his father Ronald, and some of their neighbors. They lived in Deer Park, Texas, and loved this night of the year. 
They went from house to house, ushered along by their fathers who waited at the end of each walkway, while the children descended on the occupants with cries of, It wasn't the perfect night to be out. It was raining. Timothy was sweating behind the plastic mask and the wind howled against their small bodies. Some might say it was actually perfect weather for all the ghouls and ghosts that come with Halloween. As usual, everyone was friendly and greeted the children with smiles and candy, apart from one. This house was dark and when the children knocked, they got no reply. Undeterred, they moved on to the next house, forgetting about that house immediately. Timothy's father, however, stayed behind, determined to get candy for the children. And when he caught up with the group, he was holding five giant pixie sticks, powdered candy, which he said the owner had given him. Timothy was excited and wanted to eat his straight away. Ronald opened the paper tube, told Timothy to tilt his head back and tip the sugary powder into his mouth. Timothy spluttered and said that the candy tasted weird, but was told to wash it down with Kool-Aid. The reaction was immediate. Timothy complained his stomach hurt. He was doubled over in pain, crying that he felt ill. He started to vomit violently and was convulsing. His father held him in his arms as he choked and struggled for breath. The ambulance arrived, but it was too late. Timothy was declared dead on the way to the hospital. His autopsy later showed he had died from cyanide poisoning. Panic ensued. Could it have been the candy he had eaten? Was there other candy out there that was laced with cyanide? Who could do this to a child? Police interviewed Ronald, who said that Timothy had been eating pixie sticks when he was taken ill. Police rushed door to door, collecting people's candy. One of the children was found asleep in his bed, gripping an unopened pixie sticks. The candy was tested, but the only one that contained poison was the one Ronald had given to the police. The man from the empty house was interviewed, but he had an alibi that night. He was at work miles away. So who could have carried out this heinous act? Neighbors rallied around Ronald, feeling blessed that their child was safe, but sat at Timothy's death. Ronald appeared distraught. He sung a movie song at Timothy's funeral and insisted he was now with the angels. But behind the scenes, the investigation into Timothy's death was nearing its conclusion, and all fingers were pointing toward Ronald. Ronald had taken out a substantial life insurance policy on his children. Ronald was in a huge amount of debt, and Ronald had visited a chemical supply store looking for potassium cyanide just before the murder. Coincidence? I think not. Ronald O'Brien was convicted of Timothy's murder and sentenced to death. He was executed on March 1st, 1984, in front of an audience. After eating a final meal of steak, french fries, and a Boston cream pie, Ronald never admitted to killing his son or giving candy laced with cyanide to the other children who were with him that night though he did pray for forgiveness. His wife never knew of his sadistic plan and never forgave him. In his final moments, he said, quote, We as human beings do mistakes and errors. This execution is one of those wrongs. But it doesn't mean 
the whole system of justice is wrong. Therefore, I forgive all, I do mean all, those who have been involved in my death. End quote. Ronald O'Brien will always be known as the Candyman and the man who killed Halloween. Ronald Seisman, age 39, was a photographer who ran his two photography businesses from his third floor duplex apartment on 207 West 22nd Street in the Chelsea area of Manhattan in New York. Also at the apartment was Elizabeth Platzman, a 20-year-old student of Smith College. At 7.40pm on Saturday the 31st of October 1981, the couple were found murdered in Ronald's apartment. They'd both been severely beaten before being shot in the back of their head. There were no signs of forced entry. However, the apartment was ransacked as if the killer or killers were looking for something. Ronald and Elizabeth's IDs had also been removed from their bodies. According to the police, a .25 caliber pistol registered to Ronald appeared to be missing. Some also thought that this might be related to drugs, as 18 months earlier, an actor, Melanie Haller, had accused Ronald of attempting to force her to take drugs, though she refused to cooperate with the police, so this was never pursued. What makes this story a little more creepy is that these murders have been predicted by none other than convicted serial killer David Berkovich, also known as Son of Sam, from his police cell. Police believe that the murders may have been linked to a satanic cult that Berkovich was related to. To this day, the two murders remain unsolved. Foul Play is brought to you by Nutrafol. We all know men deal with weakened or thinning hair, but did you realize that 30 million women are also dealing with it too? If that includes you, then please know that you're not alone and there is a solution that you can trust to deliver trusted results. Although I'm a man, I do deal with thinning hair. And if you're like me, you want a solution that is not only effective, but also something that's not going to be harmful to your body. That's why thousands of women have taken back control of their hair with Nutrafol, and many users rave about how the supplement transformed their hair and restored their confidence. Healthier hair growth takes time, so over three to six months, you'll start to experience thicker, stronger, and faster hair growth. You can grow thicker, healthier hair and support our show by going to Nutrafol.com and using promo code FOULPLAY and new customers will get 20% off. This is their best offer available anywhere, plus free shipping on every order. Get 20% off at Nutrafol, spelled N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L dot com. Promo code FOULPLAY, F-O-U-L-P-L-A-Y. On October 26, 2005, Frederica, Delaware, the town was getting ready for Halloween. There was an air of excitement as people made the finishing touches to their costumes and house decorations. 
and bowls of candy were filled to the brim, ready for all the children to visit. Someone had even hung a body in a huge tree next to one of the busy roads in the town. They had done a great job. The body was around 15 feet off the ground and looked so realistic that a few people even called 911. Hundreds of people walked and drove past and admired the lengths someone had gone to, all assuming it was just another holiday decoration. But there was a much more sinister background to this holiday prank. After a few calls were made to the police, a car was finally dispatched to check it out. The officers dismissed it as a decoration and subsequent callers were told this. Then, a young boy, around eight, rode by. He went home and told his mother what he had seen. While telling him it was probably just a decoration, she was worried enough to call her husband, who happened to be a firefighter. The husband went to check out what his son had seen to put his wife's mind at rest. Sadly, the decoration wasn't just another holiday prank. It was the body of a 42-year-old lady who had committed suicide by hanging herself from the tree, probably late the night before or early that morning. It was more than three hours from the first call to the police to someone realizing the body was not just a Halloween decoration. Do you know anyone who was born on Halloween? I always think that would be a pretty cool date to have your birthday, don't you? One of my friends was, and she has a black cat named Salem too. How brilliant is that? Throughout history, there have been a few notorious people born on this special date. We're going to tell you about two. On October 31st, 1905, Ellsworth Raymond Johnson was born in Charleston, South Carolina to Margaret Miltry and William Johnson. Due to a slightly abnormality on his skull, he was named Bumpy. At the age of 10, Bumpy's brother was accused of murdering a white man. Afraid of repercussions, his parents remortgaged their home to raise enough money to move him and his siblings to Harlem, where he moved in with his sister. Harlem was a haven for the black community in the early 20th century so his parents thought they would be safe there. Bumpy was picked on by the other kids, but learned to stick up for himself and became a great fighter. He dropped out of high school, made a few bucks here and there doing odd jobs, and hung out with a gang of fellow hoodlums. This is how he met William Bub Hewlett, a gangster that liked Bumpy's boldness and saw potential in him. Bub offered Bumpy a gig, offering protection to high-profile bankers. And after a few years, Bumpy became one of the most sought-after bodyguards in Harlem. Bumpy's criminal career soon took off as his repertoire grew to include armed robbery, pimping, and extortion. He spent his 20s in and out of reform schools and prisons. In 1932, Bumpy caught the eye of Stephanie St. Clair, the leader of a local gang, 
to 40 thieves, as well as being a key investor in a number of rackets. St. Clair took Bumpy under her wing, making him her personal bodyguard, as well as getting him to commit murders, robberies, and other things behind the scenes. While she evaded the mafia and waged war against the German Jewish mobster Dutch Schultz, after a stint in prison, St. Clair went her own way, and Bumpy flourished to become the true godfather of Harlem. Nothing happened in the crime world in Harlem without his say-so. He was still in and out of prison, and was in fact serving his longest stint, 15 years, for selling heroin at the notorious Alcatraz. When Frank Morris, Clarence England, and John England made the only successful escape from the island. Some people believe he was in fact a key player in assisting the three escapees, using his mob connections to arrange a boat to help them. Bumpy died of a heart attack at age 64. His funeral was attended by thousands of people, as well as dozens of uniformed police, some who were stationed on surrounding rooftops, guns in hand. His wife wrote, quote, They must have thought Bumpy was going to get up from the casket and start raising hell. End quote. On the 31st of October, 1832, Michael Robson, a colliery sinker, and Margaret Nee Lonsdale welcomed a daughter into the family, Mary Ann Robson. They lived in a small village called Low Morsley, just outside the city of Sunderland in the northeast of England. When Mary Ann was eight and her brother Robert was five, the family moved just under four miles to the village of Merton in County Durham. They lived in a miner's cottage that was linked to Michael's job. Soon after the move, Mary Ann's father, Michael, had a terrible accident and fell down a 46-metre mine shaft to his death. Once recovered, his body was delivered to her mother in a sack, stamped with the words, property of the South Hetton Coal Company. As the family home was linked to Michael's job, the family were evicted. Mary Ann left home at the age of 16 to become a private nurse for a local mine owner. Then in 1852, at the age of just 20, she married William Mowbray, a colliery labourer. They went on to have eight or nine children, though many didn't survive dying of gastric fever, a common illness that has very similar symptoms to arsenic poisoning. In 1856, after moving around a lot, the family settled in Hendon, Durham, and William took out a life insurance policy covering himself and their three surviving children. Just eight years later, in 1864, William died of gastric fever, along with two of their children. Mary Ann received the insurance money, left her remaining daughter with her mother, and moved away. Just a year later, in 1865, Mary Ann married again. Her second husband was George Ward. He was a patient in the hospital she had been working in. Unfortunately, he only survived another year, but as his wife, Mary Ann was able to claim on his insurance. Mary Ann then became a housekeeper to a James Robinson and his five children. Just weeks after her arrival in 1866, one of the children was taken ill and subsequently died of gastric fever. The following year, in 1867, Mary Ann went to visit her mother and daughter, 
Her mother died about a week after her return, though she was ailing, so there's no reason to suspect any foul play. However, her daughter then had no one to look after her, so she too moved into the Robinson household. Just a couple of months later, in April 1867, Marianne's daughter, along with two of the Robinson children, died of gastric fever. Four months after their deaths, James Robinson became Marianne's third husband. They went on to have two children, although only one of them survived. Two years into their marriage, James became suspicious that Marianne was stealing from him and was concerned about her repeated requests for him to take out a life insurance policy. So he threw her out onto the streets. Or maybe she just left, we don't really know. But she was homeless for a while. But not for long, oh no. The following year, in 1870, Marianne was lucky enough to meet widower Frederick Cotton. He was the brother of a friend of hers and they were married in the September, despite her still being married to James Robinson. Are you keeping up? That year, both Frederick's sister and youngest child died. You guessed it, gastric fever. Marianne and Frederick had a son, but tragedy was to bestow the family yet again. And by the end of the following year, in 1871, Frederick had sadly passed away along with two of his children. Marianne was of course devastated. That's sarcasm, by the way. Marianne happily received the insurance payout and took up with a former lover of hers, Joseph Natras. Yet again, Marianne fell pregnant, but don't worry, Joseph was off the hook. The father was a John Quick Manning. In 1872, Joseph Natras, not the father of the most recent baby, died leaving his meagre belongings to Marianne. While she was chomping at the bit to marry husband number five, John Quick Manning, she told a local official that she couldn't because of her stepson, Charles Edward Cotton, age seven, adding, quote, I won't be troubled long, end quote. And she was right because just a short while later, Charles died of gastric fever. The official was shocked and went to the police to tell them about their conversation. A close examine of Charles's body then took place and arsenic was found in his stomach. The bodies of Natras children, along with two other cotton children, were then exhumed and all were determined to have been poisoned. Marianne was charged with the murder of Charles Edward Cotton. While she was in prison, she gave birth to a daughter, her 13th child. In her trial two months later, Marianne claimed that the deceased had inhaled arsenic from a wallpaper dye While this may sound crazy now, back then this was actually a plausible explanation as arsenic was found in a lot of household items. However, the prosecution's evidence, especially that of other arsenic-related deaths, ultimately led to her being convicted and sentenced to death. On the 24th of March, 1873, Mary Ann was hanged in a bungled execution taking around three minutes to die. Mary Ann never confessed to any of the deaths. There are believed to be at least 21 victims, including three of her husbands and 11 of her own children. Mary Ann, also known as the Black Widow, is widely regarded as Britain's first serial killer. Before we get to our Halloween competition, we would like to tell you some quick but crazy Halloween tales. 1987, Priscilla Cobbs, 23, ran down her brother-in-law in her car because he didn't want to go to a Halloween party that she wanted to attend. 
she was dressed as a bunny at the time. 1988, Milton Tyree, aged 41, decided to prank his friends by staging a hanging in a bar on Halloween. Unfortunately, the news slipped and he ended up choking to death in front of everyone who thought he was a great actor. According to a friend of his, he always had a stupid look on his face like he was kidding around. 2000, West Hampton, New Jersey. Two teenage boys wearing ninja masks robbed four younger boys at knife point. And yes, it was a real knife for their Halloween candy. 2002, tellers at a bank in New Jersey laughed when they saw two teenage girls walking into their branch in Halloween outfits, thinking it was some kind of prank. That was until the teenagers brandished a toy gun and made off with $3,000 before speeding off in their getaway car, driven by their mum. The twins aged 14 at the time were apparently a real Thelma and Louise team. 2013, a pair of thieves donned a cunning disguise of masks from the movie Scream before robbing an armoured vehicle and getting away with more than $300,000. They were eventually caught six months later after a similar robbery where they wore balaclavas. 2014, a very bright criminal had a custom-made mask made in Canada, which he then wore to commit a number of robberies and murders in Philly. The mask set him back $1,500. What he didn't bank on was the mask maker going to the FBI and telling them who he was. Finally, it's competition time. You can win a ticket to house arrest by CrimeCon. If you've always wanted to go to CrimeCon but never have been able to, here's your chance. And you will even be able to stop by and say hi to us on Virtual Podcast Row. We have two tickets to give away, so you have double the chance of winning. All you have to do is answer this question. Which famous escape artist died on Halloween? Email your answer to shane at itsfoulplay.com. That's S-H-A-N-E at I-T-S-F-O-U-L-P-L-A-Y dot com. <laughs>